Content warning. This episode includes discussion of sex trafficking and graphic depiction of sexual attack. If you're in the car with the kids, you might want to save this one for later. The situation that Jennifer found herself in is one that no one ever expects. She was away from home, and she really didn't know anyone. On top of that, she was an American in Turkey, and she didn't speak much of the language. And her attacker was strong and determined. But what came to her during this traumatic experience were things she had heard on a television show. Oprah Winfrey would sometimes have law enforcement specialists and self-defense experts on her show to give advice about what to do in certain situations. This is from one of those experts. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. Never. If everyone in this room and everyone watching this program has never drawn the line and made a decision on crime protection, you better make it when they decide to move you from crime scene number one to crime scene number two. Because the crime scene number two is going to be isolated. You won't choose it. You'll be this, this, the focus of the crime. That advice, along with some other tips she remembered, may have helped save Jennifer's life. Because even though she was able to fight him off, he came back. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Before we get into today's story, you're about to hear from a couple of our sponsors. Sponsors play a big role in my being able to bring you these amazing stories, but I completely understand that some listeners will prefer to not hear sponsor messages, and that's fine. If that's you, I invite you to consider signing up for What Was That Like Plus to get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and a lot more. You can do this by going to whatwasthatlike.com plus. And when you're there, use the promo code PLUS to get one free month. If you're an Apple listener, it's super easy. All you need to do is click Try Free right there at the top of your feed. So now, a quick word from our sponsors, followed by today's What Was That Like story. As a podcaster, there's nothing more gratifying than being able to make a difference in the lives of real people. If you like seeing that happen and you enjoy true crime podcasts, I have a show you're going to love. It's called Proof. If you heard the first season of Proof, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This show is co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed. She's also an attorney. And Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. They created season one by investigating the story of two young men in Georgia who were serving life sentences for supposedly murdering their friend. 
These men had spent 25 years in prison, and on December 8, 2022, based on evidence that was unearthed by Susan and Jacinda for the podcast, they were released. Can you imagine being in prison for 25 years and then getting released because of a podcast? And now the second season of Proof, called Murder at the Warehouse, is being released. Susan and Jacinda are digging into this new case about Renee Ramos in Manteca, California. Her body was found under a pile of debris, and her boyfriend and another man were arrested and convicted. But things don't seem to add up. Did investigators actually ignore tips that pointed to other suspects? Could this be another case where an innocent person has spent years locked up in prison? It's all going to come out on this new season. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. You were in Turkey at the time, and you said you had your dream job. What was it that you were doing there? I was in London for four years prior to um, being in Antalya, Turkey, and I have a fine arts degree and with a concentration and focus in photography. I had met Sali, who took me to Turkey. I had met him through another opportunity while I was working at an art gallery, and we had a really great connection. We seemed to share the same spirit of wanting to contribute to a better world and to help people. And he had a foundation that he was starting that was to provide fresh, clean water to young people in Africa and villages, and then also to build schools. Those are two things that I, I really believe in. And I thought that when I left London for Turkey, which, and I was only supposed to be in Turkey for a short time, my job was eventually supposed to take me to, to Singapore. Of course, we didn't get that far. And who knows if that was even true, really, in reflection of, mm. of the story we're all about to hear. Yeah, and this story, you kind of got to look back, when you get to the end of it, look back and think, what was real and what wasn't in that story, right? I can tell you I've spent a lot of time in in the past 14 years asking myself those same questions and leaning into as I have gained more nervous system regulation and more presence in my body and just developed a clearer intuition, I feel like I have gotten some answers. Okay. So at the time you were staying at a place with your boss's cousin and she spoke very little English. How did that come about? I have always considered myself a very seasoned traveler. I'm respectful with other cultures when I travel and try and pick up, you know, the the most basic words to say please and thank you and to have a little bit of communication. And in the beginning for the first probably two or three weeks, we were pretty solid. We were communicating as best as we could, spending time together at markets and in the kitchen. And it seemed like it seemed like we were pretty cool and everything was fine. It wasn't until really one day that she walked into the apartment and I was wearing my bathing suit that she really started to, she just flipped a switch on me. And it was apparently a cultural thing, right? I believe so. Um, 
There were no windows in the, I mean, there are windows in the apartment, but where I was sitting, I was in the apartment by myself, not in front of a window, not, you know, parading around in my bathing suit. But when she came through the door and saw me there, she really, I mean, she just, she lost it. Really saying some cruel things about American women. Maybe it had been pent up in her a little bit. It seemed to have come from nowhere, really. It was quite surprising, and I think it surprised her even more that I wasn't standing down necessarily. I was just standing here like, I'm not doing anything. And it quickly just escalated. And I thought, you know what? I am just going to get out of here for the weekend. I don't need to stay here and deal with this. My boss was out of town at the time, so he couldn't have come over and mediated our situation. And I only knew one person who had mediated for us before, not in in an intense conversation, but just so that we could communicate with each other. And that's because of the language barrier. Exactly, exactly. And I was spending quite a bit of time with her. And so, you know, as you're getting to know someone, especially from two different, very different cultures, I just wanted to have the best communication with her that I could and for her to understand that my intentions were good. And, and to, for her to understand me a little bit better. And so Karem, the man from the IT shop, was had been our interpreter before. How did you know Karem? Did, did she introduce you to him? Yes. Okay, so you decided at that point, this roommate situation isn't going to work out anymore, or at least not for now anyway. So you were looking at staying somewhere else. Where did you go? I had been up to the IT shop a couple of times to see Karem. And I thought I was developing a friendship with this person. We were roughly the same age. And, you know, he was one of the only people that spoke really good English. And so we just talked about music and movies and film. And on my way back on walks to and from the beach, I might just pop in there randomly and have a conversation with them and then leave. So when I made the decision that I was going to stay somewhere else for the weekend, I made a list. And then I took that list to Karem's IT shop and asked him, like, hey, what do you think about these places? Because obviously I'm not very knowledgeable about Turkey in general, right? Only my little area that I was in. And so I took that list to him. Is this like a list of hotels mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. hostels? or Yeah, okay. hotel, a list of hotels. So you were just kind of wanting to talk to somebody more familiar with the local area and say, you know, which place would be best for me to go? Exactly, exactly. It just felt like a safer option because of the intensity of the aggression that Fatosh was putting on me. He called a place, he, you know, went through, he's like, this isn't good, stay here, you know, all through it. And then he called the hotel that he had deemed appropriate and safe. And then off we went. I already had a bag packed. All I had to do Mm -hmm. was pop up to my apartment and grab my bag. As he and I were walking out, a man entered the door. He actually held it open for us. And I met the gaze of this man and did not get a good feeling from him. But I didn't know who it was. I didn't smile or do anything. I just kept walking, got out to the car with Karem. When we got in the car, we were what I thought was heading to the hotel. And he made a quick U-turn and he said, hang on for just a second. And he went back into the shop. What I believe happened now in retrospect was that 
that is the moment that he decided that he was going to try and sell me to the man in the shop. I think that he realized, oh, there's another option here. And so when he got back into the car with me, he sold me this story about a Russian girl that he knew. Her name is Alani, that her brother was out of town. So I could stay there for the weekend. It wouldn't be a big deal. And that I would have someone to speak English with, someone to go to the beach with, and probably a friend, a female friend. And I thought, that that sounds cool. That's even better. That's that's cheaper than a hotel, right? Yeah. And I would love to meet a girl. I would love to meet a girlfriend. That sounds great. And so off we went. And when Alani opened the door, she was very warm. Uh, she hugged me. She had a great smile. She did in, indeed speak really good English. And we were of similar age. And um, And how old were you at the time? I was 32. And we should say, too, for people that aren't realizing this already, you're natively an American. Yes, I'm from Virginia. But you do a lot of traveling abroad, and so you're very, I can tell just from talking with you, you're sensitive to other cultures and not being the obnoxious traveling American when you're in other countries. No, I, I try to avoid that as, as much as I can. I always, you know, and, and being in Turkey is a Muslim country. I wasn't walking around in tank tops and shorts. I was wearing um, sleeves that were down to my uh, elbows. I was always keeping my shoulders covered. I mean, I was being very respectful of of the culture. And I, I did stick out without, I mean, you as an American in a Muslim country, you're going to stick out if you're not wearing a burqa or actually Turkey is a bit more, um, I guess, liberal with that. The women can be educated and they don't have to cover themselves, but there is mm. still a different way that I look. So you got settled in there at uh, Alani's place. Mm -hmm. The apartment was on the second floor. The house was decorated as if it was lived in art on the walls, pictures, instruments on the ground. Like there was, it looked like a space where people lived. I put my bag in the room. I didn't take too much notice of this at first. I mean, she told me that her, they both had told me that her brother was out of town, but in the room that I was in, also, this is just something in retrospect, it was two single twin beds. They were both very childlike comforters on them. One was looked like it was for a little boy and one looked like it was for a young girl. But in my mind, I didn't really think about it too much. I just popped my stuff in there, put my toothbrush in the bathroom and started to make myself at home and, you know, make my acquaintances. And Karim was still there for that time. And it wasn't very long before Sinan the man in the IT shop that had given me the creep feel came through the door. He was a different person when he came through that door. He was much lighter. He was smiling. He was really being very kind to me. And it was her boyfriend. So then it was like, okay. So her brother, who knows if she even had a brother, right? I doubt he it. He was out of town. <laughs> yeah. Or just not there. So now it's Alani mm -hmm. and Karim, the IT guy, and you, and then Sinan, Sinan. comes mm -hmm. in. Yes. And he seems really nice then. Did you have a bad feeling about him at that time? No, I did not. I didn't. 
We are sitting around and chatting. Um, we had smoked a spliff together, which is like a mix of cannabis and tobacco. And Karem announced that he was going back to the IT shop to close up with his partner and that he would return afterwards. So the three of us were left to have dinner together. And I was actually feeling quite relieved not to have Fatosh in in my space after her aggression towards me. And so um, once Karim got back, he brought back like a case of beer and I've never drank beer. So I wasn't drinking with them. And I had a, at that point always been a cannabis user. And I can see now that they were trying to get me in some sort of very uh, an altered state of consciousness. But with the product that they provided me versus my already familiarity with that plant, it was like, what, what it, I, I was fine. I was totally just fine. In fact, it kind of got to the point where I, it wasn't really even worth it. And Karim at one point, probably around 11.30 p.m., decided to take off. And I was getting pretty tired as well and, and began to excuse myself. And Sinan and Alani pleaded like, no, please, please have a drink with us. Stay up. We want to get to know you. And so they pulled out a bottle of vodka and some Red Bull. And I was like, no, I just don't feel like drinking once again, I think just pushing substances onto me to alter my state. And so I sat up with them for a little bit and... During that time, we took a picture together, the three of us. Karim takes off. I hung out with them for a little bit. And then I'm just like, you know, you guys, thank you so much. But I, I'm going to go to bed now. And I was wearing some black cotton palazzo pants that had like a five or six inch waist on them. You know, just really big cotton pants, wide leg, super comfy and a T-shirt. And I had gone into my bedroom and I was sitting on, when you walk through the door, I was on the bed on the, on that wall of the door. And I had just sat down when I heard the doorknob turn. And as I turned to look over my right shoulder, Sinon was entering the room and he was only wearing his underwear, like tidy whities And I just said, literally said to myself, oh, fuck brace yourself. This is about to happen. And I did. And it did. I mean, he came at me. Did you say anything when he came in? I did not really have the opportunity. It was, he was in the door. I have my reaction. I really felt my body brace and tense up because as I'm sitting there and he, I mean, the room was very small. He was probably only three or four steps away from me once he entered the room. And he did shut the door behind him. And, um, you know, in that tension of my body, it was like not only preparing myself to defend my body, but also being prepared to fight someone, a man. Did you have any kind of anything you could grab as a weapon? No, no I did not. I did not. When our eyes met, I knew what his intention was. He was going to try and rape me. And that was the first battle of our evening. And um, I mean, I, I was terrified and at the same time, wildly alive and receptive to my, my actions and his actions. And I, I mean, I've never been, I've never been in a fight before. I've never hit anyone before or, you know, and he was, 
he was grabbing at my clothes to get them off and he was hitting me. He was trying to get me to shut up because I'm screaming, like I'm screaming, stop. No, I'm saying it in Turkish. I'm saying it in English. And I'm like, I'm trying to hit him back, but he's just getting more and more violent. Like he's just like punching me with his fist. I'm trying to kick him and hit him at the same time. It's just like, shots fired in all directions at this point. And he was really struggling to get me under his control because he could not shut me up, hold my arms down and pin my legs down at the same time. I was not conceding. How would you describe his physical build compared to you? So I'm roughly 5'9". And I would say he stands at about 5'7", stocky, sausage fingers, beady eyes. And I wouldn't be able to really guess his weight, but I mean, he was a stocky guy. He was, I mean, he was stronger than me, definitely. It was probably not the first time he had punched someone, even though it was maybe for you. No. And I think like getting back to all the substances, the cannabis, the beer, the vodka, you know, the the friendliness of his nature was just like, put this all in her system. Like I said, I didn't really partake. When you were screaming, did you think Alani, his girlfriend, would hear you? I mean, they're, this, is, this is in the same house. Eventually, she does hear me and does come into the room, but not in this first attack. In the first attack, which probably went on for... Oh, gosh, five to seven minutes. I mean, it, I, maybe it didn't really, time seemed to be very extended and stop at the same time. So it's kind of right. hard for me to, even in reflection, calculate calculate that, especially with the level of energy that was um, being asserted. But, you know, like I was saying, I'm just wearing cotton palazzo pants. I'm not wearing mm-hmm. anything with a zipper or a button. And eventually he did start to pull on those pants and start to take them down only partially. You know, I was wearing underwear and we continued to fight. And at some point, I don't know why he stopped, honestly, but he did. He stopped and he leaves the room. And I'm like, okay, maybe he's surprised at how much I'm fighting him. Maybe he's going for more supplies. Who knows? Is he going to tie me up? Is he going to drug me for real? Like, I don't really know what is about to happen, but like the clock is ticking. I changed my pants. I got into jeans that had a zip up and a button on them. And I also put another t-shirt on and a t-shirt that wasn't as loose, just a more, um, not necessarily a fitted t-shirt, but just something that was a little tighter around the waist so you're making a plan to get out of there at that well, point. Absolutely. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to jump out of one of these windows. I'm only on the second floor. I got to get my passport out of here. I've got to get myself out of here. And you know, Oprah and John Walsh taught me in the 80s as a latchkey kid, you don't go to the second location. If you go to the second location, you're fucked. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm an only child. I'm out there traveling in the world. Like I can't. I don't want, I had just seen Taken. The one with uh, Liam Neeson. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so it was like between Oprah and John Walsh in my head, watching that movie. I'd always been a CSI watcher. So I'm like, I'm just ticking through a list now. 
And so I go to both of the windows and although I'm on the second floor, there was a huge drop. I I was probably really on like the fifth floor or sixth floor and there's no trees, there's no canopy, there's no hope for dropping out of this window. So I decided to take my phone and my passport I opened the window and I dropped them directly below and figured, well, at least those two things are out of the house. And so when I get out, I'll be able to find my identity, get my phone. And as I'm circling the room, trying to figure out the strategy, what's going to happen? Is he coming back with something that's stronger or more effective to hold me and tie me down? I mean, it was just like, kind of felt like a caged animal just kind of waiting for like, what is beyond that door? I don't know if I should like leave this door. I'm just in here circling. And to this day, as much reflection as I've done, I have never really found an answer to what I'm about to say, because I have no idea how he knew that I threw my things out the window, but he did. And he came busting through that door, pissed, and he was holding my phone and my passport. And he just came at me. He was so enraged. And I just thought, well, here we go again. And the attack this time lasted much longer. It was a lot more aggressive. And even though I had changed my pants, that it was a greater challenge for him. It might have slowed him down a little bit, but he was just seemed a lot more prepared for the fight. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Here's a what would you do question. From now on, every day at 5 p.m., an hour goes by, and it's still 5 p.m., so you get an extra full hour in your day. What would you do with that hour of free time? For me, do I start writing that book I've been thinking about? Start learning a new language? Check in with some people I haven't talked to in a while? Seems like everyone wishes there was more time. The question is, time for what? How do you prioritize? Well, guess what? Therapy can help you figure out what really matters to you so you can do more of those things. Talking with a professional therapist can help you answer some of those internal questions, and that can empower you to actually be the best version of yourself. You've heard me and a lot of my guests talking about the benefits of therapy here on the podcast, and maybe you've been thinking about checking it out. If that's you then give BetterHelp a try. You can do it from home in your pajamas if you want because it's all online and you can fit it to your specific schedule. You just answer a few questions, get matched with a licensed therapist, and you're on your way. And you can even get started right now with a discount. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash what was today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash what was. When's the last time you took a $10 bill, walked into your bathroom, and flushed it down the toilet? Well, for me, it was about three weeks ago. Okay, I didn't literally send cash into the local sewer system, but I might as well have, because I was paying for a subscription that I forgot about and wasn't even using. And the only way I knew about it was because I signed up for Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions It monitors your spending, and it helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. So you can immediately see all of your subscriptions listed right there in one place. When I saw that list, there were things listed that I didn't even know what they were. You know how it is. You sign up for a free trial, 
and then you end up not using the thing and you forget about it, but you still keep paying for it. With Rocket Money, I just make a few clicks and they cancel it for me. I don't even have to make a phone call. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash what was. That's rocketmoney.com slash what was. Rocketmoney.com slash what was. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. I remember a memory that I had of actually watching an Oprah episode where an elderly lady's home who had been broken into in the middle of the night and a man got in her bed and tried to rape her and she had grabbed onto his genitals so hard and squeezed them that he asked her to stop. Like, please, I'm tapping out. And I thought of that woman and I tried that same thing and I just grabbed onto him so hard, but oh, he just... I mean, he just, he just punched me right in the face. He punched me so hard. And in that moment, I think is when he got my jeans, like he got my button undone and he started to pull my pants down. And I did have a, a moment, honestly, where I thought to myself, I don't know how much of this I can stand. I, I don't know if I'm going to win this fight. And so what content, what like propelled me to stay engaged in that fight was that when he did get my pants a little bit down, he'd taken my underwear with him and I felt his penis touch the side of my leg, like just inside, like not inside of me, but getting too close, <laughs> just getting too close. And that really ignited a fire within me. It was like, oh, no. No, 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 no. And now I start screaming for Alani. And I am really screaming, like, help me. I'm calling for her. And finally, she comes in the room. She opens the door, looks at me. We make eye contact. And then she shuts the door. And I thought, oh, my God. She's, she is not she is not. She's not an ally. In she's this. not an ally. This lady is not going to help me. And... Here I am on my own, but there's just no way I'm going to let this man. I mean, he's going to have to do something more to me to, to rape me. I'm not going to allow that. Once again, I mean, let's just say maybe it was 10 minutes long of a, of a fight. And once again, he just 
stopped. He stopped and he left the room. And I thought, okay, here we go again. Get dressed, put another layer on, get this back together. And now I have my phone. So I sent Karem a message, a text, and it said, help me in capital letters. And I had a little, a flip phone Nokia. And I sent that text message. And after I did that, a little musical note went off like, well, he heard that. And here he comes busting through the room. And now he's grabbed me by the wrist. He's trying to pull me out of the room. I'm trying to stay in the room. And I'm resisting as best as I can. Like, I I don't know where he's going to take me. I'm terrified. And he wants me to go into the bedroom where Alani is and where she is sleeping. It looks like she's sleeping. She might be passed out. She was engaging in all of the uh, substances as we were there that night. And he's trying to drag me in there and tell me that I need to sleep in bed with the two of them and that everything is going to be okay. He's telling me actually he's sorry. And I'm like, what? This is a, this is a trick. Like something is going on here. But you know, the, the master bedroom was right adjacent to the room that I was in. And she's passed out in the middle of their king size bed. And he pushes me along to the far away part of the room, to the other side of the bed. When I sat down on the bed, I made the decision to lay down on my left side. I'm facing a double, like a a sliding glass door that goes to an outside balcony. I'm sneaking discreet glimpses over my shoulder to watch what he's doing. And because he's kind of in and out of the room, he's making a lot of noise. And um, I'm, I just kind of want to keep an eye on him. But I also don't want to be making clear visual contact with him. And so as I lay there, I see Alani's phone is on the nightstand. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. So I powered it off and I stuck it in between the mattress and the box box rings and thinking like, okay, well, now I have a phone because he's got my phone and passport now. He took them from me on the time where he pulls me from the room. So he still has those things. He's got those two things now. So now I've got her phone. I'm just wondering his state of mind at this point that he expects you after two attempted rapes to just fall asleep. Yeah, exactly. It's so strange. I mean, it's bizarre. It's not logical behavior. I I don't think at all. But in one of my glimpses of watching him, I noticed that he's got, I heard it at first, he had almost what looked like a janitorial set of keys. So many keys. And there was an ironing board on the other side of the room. Like when you first enter the room, there's an ironing board there. And then the bed is in the center. I'm on the far side of the bed. And he took that set of keys and he's put it, shoved it underneath of some clothes there. And I'm thinking, well, that's not an ordinary set of keys. And I don't know that that's really going to be an option. How would I not disturb him? How, How would I even get that? So I laid there and I just silently cried. I put my snot on the bedsheet cover. I just cried. I thought, well, once again, if CSI comes in here, they're going to find my DNA. 
they're going to see my snot with that blue light, see my tears, and they're going to be able to find me some way. I basically lay there until the sun started to come up. And it was probably, I would venture to say, if Karem left the house around 1130, it's probably one o'clock in the morning or something by now. And so I just laid there, just waiting, listening to the snores, listening to the rhythm of what's happening in the room, trying to find a cadence, trying to figure out like, what's my next move going to be? Once I'd gathered that information and really the courage to even start to make my way out of the room, I grabbed Alani's phone. I crawled out of bed so slowly and started to sneak across the room because I've got to cross the bed where they are. I've got to open the door and I have to leave the room. And then I have to find a weapon. I've got to figure out what is going to happen here next because I got to get out of here. I got to figure out that too. And so, you know, I'm just praying as I'm, as I'm creeping past them, like, please stay sleeping. Uh, so I get to the door, I slide out and I make my way to the kitchen. I open the cabinet and get a glass because I thought I'm just going to break this and shove it into his neck. That's going to be my only weapon here. So I get the glass and I go out to the balcony and I turn the phone on. And the balcony is on the second floor. So I've never jumped out of a, off a balcony from, uh, from a first floor, to be honest with you. And it's tile or something like that. I don't know if it's concrete or tile, um, but it, it's a hard surface and there's nothing else there. I get the phone turned on. I set the glass down. I'm surveying the area. And then I think the camera, we took that picture. I got to get that. I got to get that. I got to, I have to be able to identify these people to the authorities. So I go in, I get the camera and I'm trying frantically to like pop out the memory card. I couldn't figure it out. So I take it back out onto the balcony and I chucked it as far as I could. I'm trying to hit an agave plant. That's, I mean, I'm kind of laughing because it's like, how far did I think I could throw something? The agave plant is green, obviously. The lawn was green, and there is a red camera about three feet in front of the agave plant now. So I'm like, well, that wasn't the best, but... So if he looks down, he he would see it there, obviously. Yeah, you would see it. And so in this few moments, now he's on the... Now he's on the patio. He's on the balcony with me. And he is like, he's shocked. He's shocked that I'm out there. He grabs for me. My glass is on the table. So I don't really have that as my weapon right now. It's like not in front of me. And I had a moment where I thought maybe I can play nice and I can get out of this. So I'm like, I'm going to pretend like nothing ha- nothing's happening here. I'm just going to approach him in a new way and be nice and see if he lets me go. Maybe last night was a drunken mistake. You know, I haven't really put too much together at this point. I'm I don't really understand yet that I'm in a trafficking situation or a potential trafficking situation. Right now I'm just thinking 
I'm going to be raped and who knows what's going to happen. Like definitely rape is on the table, but I don't know how far else this is going to go. It's, you know, I got to say it's, it's amazing to me that with the trauma that you've already been through at this point, that you're thinking, is this logical? I mean, you're, you're planning ahead. You got the, you want to do the camera. You're looking for a weapon. You're, I mean, it's not like you're, you're just panicking and, in a state of disarray, you were, you were thinking. It was like a checklist. I mean, everything that I've ever watched, all of the crime, the Oprah, all of it is just like, it's, I don't really know other than just that was a story I was intended to, to play out. So here we are. And now I'm like, Hey, are we going to the beach today? You said we were going to go to the beach today. Where's Alani? Let's get her up. Let's go to the beach. I'm just like trying to be nice, trying to see what happens here. And he is not me being nice isn't really working. He is not receiving that at all. And so as he passes through the living room, he notices that the camera isn't sitting on the coffee table. And he asks me, where's the camera? I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he's like, no, we took a picture. Where's the camera? And I'm like, no, dude, seriously, I, I have no idea. I don't have your camera. And he is pretty accusingly like in his looks at me. He's kind of yelling at me once again. I mean, his English is better than Fatosh's, but not as good as Alani's and not as good as mine, obviously. So I'm arguing back with him. I'm shaking my head profusely. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, he wakes up Alani over this little camera. And before you know it, I mean, a full search is going on in the house. And I'm trying to keep him off the balcony. Because if you go out on the balcony, you're going to see the camera. So every time he heads for the balcony, I'm trying to make a distraction. It sounds like there was more on that camera than just that selfie that you guys took last night, that this was really important to him. Definitely. I think so, too. I think there were more women or more kids, more girls, who knows who, but more more victims on that camera. And that was important to them. And maybe, And I think that's why they took a picture of me, so that they would have that as a maybe a selling point. And so Alani's out now. And Sinan and her are having a conversation and he's telling her the night before I threw my stuff out the window and she's looking at me and we're all looking at each other. And I'm just kind of watching this weird game of Turkish charades going on. Like, I don't know what they're saying to each other, but it was pretty surreal. Honestly, that that particular part was really surreal for me. And I'm just thinking like, fuck, this is not going well. <laughs> like this, this is not going well. And so... He goes towards the front door. Well, I'm right on him. I am right on his footsteps because the back to the janitorial keys, there's probably four locks on that front door. So he's unlocking. I'm right there and he's shoving me back and grabs me. This is when he really start. He start grabbing me by the neck and he would start pushing me back while he's choking me out to push me back down onto the couch, which was probably 15 or 20 feet away from the front door. Well, every time I sat down, I popped right back up. Now I'm telling him, I want to leave. I want to get out of here. Let me out. And, you know, same thing again. He's just got a much stronger grip and he pushes me down and 
he leaves the door. So he gets out the front door and from the other side now, he's locking us back in. He goes outside. I'm alone with Alani. She goes into the bathroom I was using, the guest bathroom, where my toothbrush temporarily was. And I just begin pleading with her. I'm like, Alani, please, I need your help. Where are your keys? And she's just like, everything is okay. Everything's fine, Jennifer. I'm like, it's not, it's not fine. I'm not safe. Please, I'm begging you. Like, let, you have to help me. I need to get out of here. And she's like, you're fine. It's okay. But stop making him so mad. And I'm like, what? Okay. Once again, this, this girl is not my ally. This is not who is going to help me. And if she helped you, she would be paying the price later for that. Absolutely. And she probably knew that. I mean, who knows what her situation was in reflection of this scenario. And so I'm standing in front of her in the open bathroom and here come the keys. I can hear the keys hitting the lock and I'm just like, okay, he's back. So he comes in, our eyes meet and I made it a point then in that day that if he looked at me, I would look directly back at him. You know, there were some times in the night before where I was like, I'm just not going to keep that visual contact. But today, I'm going to look him dead in the eyes. If he looks at me, I'm gonna look at him right back, because I'm going to let him know energetically, you're messing with the wrong girl. Sinon goes down the hall into their primary bedroom. And now Alani is in the kitchen looking in the kitchen cabinets for this camera. And so I have a light bulb moment the night before she clipped a string, a loose string from his shirt. And I know that there's a small pair of scissors underneath of the coffee table. You know, the coffee table had like a glass top and underneath there's also a shelf with a couple of little things there. And on top of one of the bowls, there was a small pair of scissors. And I mean, I would think the blade was probably four inches. But it was pointed on the end? Pointed, mm -hmm. bigger than a sewing needles or... um like nose trimmer needle, you know what I mean? Bigger than that, but not a full size pair of scissors. And so I put them underneath of the back of my bra strap so that the scissors were going horizontally. And when Sinon comes back into the room, he hands me back my phone and my passport. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of weird. Am I leaving? Like, why is he giving me this? So I stuck my phone and my passport on the right side of my bra underneath my shirt to keep them safe. I said to him, are you taking me home? And he says, no. And I'm like, what, what are you doing with me? And he has no verbal reply. And he goes to walk out the front door again. So I'm right back on his heels, grabs me by the throat, start to choke me out and push me back. I'm right back up. And as he's turned around, now I have grabbed the scissors and I'm holding them in my right hand with the blade going up my forearm. And I told myself, it's you or him now, and it is not going to be you. So when he turned around and he grabbed me with his right hand in my neck, and I had the scissors and I immediately, I stabbed him in the nose and drug the scissors across his face. And then I hit him, got him one other time. Where was the second hit? Around his neck. 
It was around his neck, actually. It See this soft spot here? And just for anyone who's listening, there is a reason why you go for an artery or a vein, because this is a puncture wound. He just started, when I hit him, he just started to bleed out everywhere. And he realizes what's going on the first time. And as he lets my neck go, he's doing a quick release. I've stabbed him again, and he immediately goes to punch my neck. But I'm watching his hands. It's like everything's happening in slow motion. So I'm able to kind of dodge it a little bit. He got me slightly, but not, not near as hard as he had really like made a direct a direct hit. And so now he's in shock. She's in shock. He's bleeding. And Alani begins to clean up the blood. She's just got, she just goes into the kitchen, grabs a wet paper towel, and she's cleaning blood up. She's trying to help him stop bleeding. They're putting pressure on it. He is livid. He's so pissed at what's just happened. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com slash start. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. I I think the whole house was in panic in that moment because I realized that I didn't do the right thing. 
I realize now why you're supposed to slit someone's throat in an instant like that and not stab them in the neck. But it still, it, it got his attention away from attacking you. Now he's attending to his injury. Yes, he's attending to his injury. She's cleaning up and um, everyone's surprised. Everyone's pretty enraged. And he comes back at me. He's screaming. He's holding a cloth on his neck. He's screaming at me. His blood is streaming down him. Honestly, this sounds like a Quentin Tarantino movie right now. It was like slow motion. I can't believe I'm 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 just standing here watching this scene and I I I just fucked up. I just had my one what feels like my one chance to get out of this house or to hurt him enough to where he is debilitated if I've got to jump off the second floor balcony or whatever's about to happen here. I just blew it. And I'm not really feeling very good about this situation right now. I'm not feeling really great at all. He turns to her, he shouts something at her, and then he heads towards the kitchen. And when he returns, in purpose and in fury, he is holding a nine-inch carving knife. And he's holding it like Psycho. He's holding it with a grip, with the blade coming down. And now I'm backing away, backing away, backing away. I'm back on the couch, and he's over me. And he is making slashes at me. He's not hitting me, but he is performing it like he is going, what he's basically letting me know what is going to happen to me. He pulls me up to stand face to face with him. And now I say to myself, and this is exactly what I said. I said, well, uh, this is it. You're going to die here. And I mean, that that thought finished, and it was the only thing that I can describe as divine intervention. I felt this real energetic force in between us. And then my next thought was, no, you're not going to die. He backs off. Only moments, seconds have passed. And he's still got the knife, but he's not in my face anymore. And he is telling me now, I'm going to call the police. And I'm like, awesome, I think. Like, this could go one of two ways, right? Like, are the police good or are the police bad? Because I could still end up in the ground somewhere. Or maybe this man is, who knows, right? I don't know, but I'm thinking, okay. So a knock on the door. And a man walks in. He's probably in his 30s, clean-cut guy. He's wearing a pink Ralph Lauren polo shirt and some shorts. And I'm like, well, this doesn't really look like the police. So who is this? So now I'm listening to Sinan tell this man the story. And he's looking at me and... Could you understand the story that he was telling him? Not necessarily. Like I said, it's like watching charades. I'm watching the movements. I'm kind of got a few words and he's just, they're both looking at me. Alani is still cleaning up and tending to Sinan's wounds. You know, I'm just like, well, I don't know what the hell's going on. The man in the polo shirt literally like stopped talking to Sinan, faced me, took a couple of steps towards me and just stopped and looked at me. And then Sinan says, I'm calling Karem. And I'm like, okay. So here comes Karem. Karem arrives. Once again, story. And 
Karim comes and sits in front of me and he says, Jennifer, what have you done? This is very bad. And I replied, I leaned into him and I was like, please get me out of here. I will explain everything to you, but this man is trying to hurt me. You've delivered me to a bad place and I need to get out of here. Please help me. And so he gets up. He says something to Sinon, who still has the knife in his hand. He's walking around with that knife. He's still holding it. And I I made an eye contact with Karim. I'm looking at him. Look at the knife. Look at him. Look at the knife. And so he's the one who gets the knife out of Sinon's hand. So he comes back to me, Karim does, and he says, go get your things. I asked him to come with me. He said no. And so I go into my room. You mean come with you to the bedroom? I was scared to go back there by myself. But I went back there. I My bag wasn't really unpacked, to be honest with you. It had been a little bit disheveled in my own changing of clothes, but I didn't really have much happening there. I, I left my toothbrush and I think I left a couple of other things there, um, like bathroom essentials and stuff, but nothing really personal. As Karem and I start to leave the uh, apartment, Sinon is behind me. And I'm following Karem down a huge spiral marble staircase. I mean, it looked like something that you would see in the Vatican or something. It was just like this piece of art, this big staircase. And I put the duffel bags so that it was in front of me, thinking if he pushes me down the stairs, I've got something soft to land on or to try and break my fall. So we get into the car and Karem says to me, Jennifer, where's the camera? And I'm like, dude, I don't, I do not know where this camera is. Okay. I don't know. Did Sinon get in the car with you as well? No, he did not. He's standing at the passenger side window where I'm sitting. And these two are talking through me. And Karem is now asking me, where is the camera? And I'm like, I have no idea. And, and side note, like I said, I'm a photography major. I have cameras. I'm telling Karim this. I'm like, I have cameras. I don't need some shitty SLR, some little point and shoot. Like I, I have cameras. I don't need this guy's camera. Karim drives off and starts with all these questions. And I'm like, look, please, I'll, I will tell you everything. Just drive. And instead of taking me to my apartment, which was probably only five, five minutes away from where I was, he takes me to the beach. <laughs> it's like, it's the morning time. I mean, it's like 9 a.m. maybe at this point. He actually orders a beer at this place. And I'm in a yellow, I'm not in a jersey type of material, but I'm wearing a yellow Brazil jersey type of type of jersey. Green number 10, Brazil logo, bright yellow. And people are kind of looking at me funny. I don't really understand why. At this moment, he's very upset. He's angry and he's telling me that I've done something wrong and I'm, I'm floored. I'm like, I did something bad. Are you kidding me? Like, no. Mm -mm. But you haven't yet told him the full story of what happened, right? You, he's only heard it from Sinan. Yeah. And, and I really didn't t go into too much. I just told him, you know, he's, he attacked me. He tried to rape me and Karem asked me, he asked me if I'd be calling the police. And I said, no, I'm going to book a flight to London. I'm getting out of here like as soon as I possibly can. And I had all intentions of going to the police. Honestly, I knew the mayor of the next town through my boss. He takes me home. 
He drops me off in front of the apartment. And the way that my apartment is, when you walk in through that front door, there's a little bit of a a lobby, if you will. There's stairs in an elevator. And when you're in your apartment, you might get a buzz if someone's downstairs trying to get in, but you wouldn't know who it is. So if you accept the buzz, you who knows who's coming up? And I'm on the eighth floor. So when somebody downstairs hits the buzzer, it rings in every apartment? No, it just rings in your de- designated apartment. But you wouldn't be able to say like, oh, it's Scott. Is Jennifer there? You're just buzzing in who knows who. And so I waited in the lobby and I watched for his car to drive away. I knew some people in the other apartment next door who were on the exact same floor as me. I'd met them several times walking to and from the beach. And so when Karem drove away, I went to their apartment. They buzzed me up. And when they opened the door, I, as I went to go in, they stopped me and, and held me back. And that's when I realized that on that yellow shirt, I had a ton of blood on me. And that's probably why everybody was looking at me so strangely when I was at the beach. I called my dad. I took all the clothes off. I didn't take a shower because I know once again that if you have any situations like this, you don't shower in case there's any DNA on you or, you know, any evidence whatsoever. So I changed clothes. I called my dad and then I called the mayor's daughter of the nearby town, spoke English. Bless her heart. She was only 13 or 14 at the time, but I told her what had happened and they told me to get in a cab and get there right away, that they were going to take me to the police station. And that's that's what we did. I, I jumped in a cab, went over there, and then I went to see the police. Did you feel safe at that point? I. It's weird because these are the only people I know. I don't know anyone. And now this little girl is the only person I know who speaks English. When I got to the mayor's house, the mayor wasn't there yet. He'd been in Ankara and he was on his way back to Antalya. And so it's me, the, the little girl, the young lady, the mayor's brother and the mayor's wife. And so when the mayor arrived, he, we, we did, we went to the police station and I told them everything with the help of a translator. And once again, who knows how things are really being translated? I mean, I'm, I'm, we're doing my best, you know, and I handed them my bag of clothes with the evidence. And um, after we went through everything and the the detective, the lead detective, the chief of police there, I, I think it was the chief of police. And he was awesome. He was really a godsend. Honestly, he he reminded me of like a, a Turkish Tommy Lee Jones. Like he had these he was hip, you know, like he had great jeans on and his ostrich boots. And he just had a real... He had a really friendly energy, but he also had an energy that was protective. I felt really comfortable. Once I was with him, I felt very secure. And he tells me, good job. I'm proud of you. You've done a really, really good thing. Do you think you could get back to the apartment? And so I said, yeah, I think I can. If we start at my apartment, get to the IT shop, I might be able to find find my way there. So we the chief of police, the lead detective, and me get into a vehicle together. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the place. We sat in front of the IT shop and the chief of police said, we'll be waiting here for Karim when he opens the shop in the morning. And we went off to try and find the apartment. I couldn't find it. And he said, don't worry, we're going to get Karim and he's going to take us there. 
we're going to figure it out. I'm like, okay. So he's like, now you have to go to the hospital. You have to have all the tests done. Instead of them taking me to the hospital, they leave it up to the mayor's brother. We get to the hospital. We're there for hours. I mean, just hours. And there's really not, I let them know, like, he did not put himself inside of me. He didn't have his tongue in my mouth. Like, there's, I don't, I don't really know what you're going to find. And the bruises are so fresh, they're not really coming out yet. I mean, over time, you can start to see a little bit of something coming up. It's particularly uh, a spot on my neck. But God, I just, I remember sitting there and thinking, just how gross I felt to be quite honest with you. You know, like blood has been on me. I've had this energetic, this man on me, this whole fight, this whole thing. And I just, I really felt terrible. I just really felt so gross. And now it's almost 2 a.m. before I leave the hospital. So all of this has just gone on for so long. The police station, the police department, finding the IT shop, the apartment, the hospital. And you were up all night. Up on the night before, you've yeah. got to be exhausted at exhausted, this point. Exhausted, exhausted. I I just felt kind of worn down. While I was at the mayor's house, I called my old flatmate when I from when I lived in London. He was a um, trauma surgeon in the ER, and so I had booked my flight to London, and I was leaving the next day. I can't remember what time my flight was, but I was police department, and we're done. I'm out of here. I gotta go. <laughs> After the police officially released me, after the exams, they officially released me. And the mayor and his brother owned a hotel in a neighboring town. So now the brother is taking me to the neighboring town to stay in a hotel. And in this time, my mom has contacted the U.S. Embassy. And now the U.S. Embassy is involved. And I get into the hotel. I don't know this yet, but I get into my hotel room. I'm alone. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make myself secure. I moved furniture in front of the screen door. I've got furniture in front of the door and I'm trying to barricade myself in and then look for the appropriate weapons. And now I can finally have a shower, which I'm, you know, thrilled about, but there's no soap. I had no soap. I just took a wet, dry shower. And you know, if you've ever done that, you are not clean. And you just don't feel real great about it. It, w- it was weird. It was like I kept trying to cry about it. Like I was just so exhausted and so run down. But I just had nothing, nothing in me. And after the shower, I immediately got redressed. I laid in the bed and I was kind of falling in and out of sleep. But I was holding my little cell phone. And then I got a call from the U.S. Embassy. That's when I realized my mom had been talking to the U.S. Embassy. They are telling me, we don't know this mayor. We don't know the mayor's brother. We don't know who owns this hotel you're in. And we got to get you out of here because we don't know who's involved. You cannot trust anyone. Don't talk to anyone. No one. Until we put you in touch with someone, you say nothing. You call no one. There is no U.S. Embassy in Antalya, but there is a British consulate. And it just so happens that the British consulate and her husband live in the town that I'm in with this hotel. So the U.S. embassies contacted them. The British, the woman, the consulate, she's at the the British consulate. And her husband is now coming to the hotel to pick me up. On the way to the consulate, I get a phone call from the police chief. 
He's in the apartment. They found it. They get to Karem. Karem's under arrest and Karem took them to the apartment. Sinan and Ilani and Ilani have fled and they want me to go there. So the husband of the consulate drives me to a meeting point where I get back into the car with the police chief and the lead detective. And he tells me, we're going to still go to the consulate. So he tells the man, go to the consulate. We're going to meet you there. And I let him know at that point, like, I have a flight to catch here in a few hours. So let's tie this up. So I arrived to the apartment and they had me put on the little booties, you know, so that my footprint wouldn't be in there. They've got, everybody's got gloves on and booties and back to the blue light that I knew eventually was going to come into the scene. They asked if they could film me. So I went through and I did a full interpretive dance of everything that happened the night before. Uh, thankfully, there my toothbrush was still there and there was still a little bit of blood splatter on the walls. I walked them over to where my DNA and my let's like my snot and tears were on the side of the bed skirt. I looked over and saw an ashtray. Actually, Alani and Sinan had smoked two different cigarettes. She had one and he had one. And so then then there's their DNA on the cigarettes. It was interesting. Now I get to open doors I hadn't been in before. Now I get a a broader view of what's going on. This is when I really notice the two twin beds and I really see it for what it is. There was a room across the hall from me that had two sets of bunk beds in it. And then the room next to mine where I had Um, It was the only room next to me when I had thrown my stuff out the window. This is why I still can't figure this part out of how he knew that because the room next to me didn't have any windows. So it wasn't like he was in that room watching my room. So I don't know if there was an outside somebody waiting out there or I don't know. That is a real mystery to me that I have not found an answer to. And I don't even know if I need one. But the whole place had a lot of rooms and a lot of beds. And the camera's gone from the agave plant, from the lawn in front of the guys. They found it. And it would have been, it'd have been a miracle if they hadn't have found it. I mean, it was a red camera on a green lawn. So they got, you gave them all the information they needed, really, to investigate this case. The chief of police and I, I, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, he just had, he had my back. He looked at me several times and he was like, I believe everything that you've said. I believe you. He was proud of me. He told me that. You know, like an, an uncle or a fatherly figure looking at you, uh, you know, and saying like, I'm, I'm really proud of what you did. And, um, and, and that, was, that was legitimate pride because you thought your way through this whole thing. Yeah. Rather than panicking and, or giving up. And I would say, I mean, something bigger than me saved me. I mean, something bigger than me intervened. Turkish Tommy or the chief of police and the detective and I, we all go to the consulate. She was lovely. I mean, she was just amazing, very warm and kind. And and finally, a woman I can trust in this space. And as we're all sitting there, she tells me they want you to go back to the hospital. They want to swab your cheeks. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. There's no... There's nothing. He didn't, no, nothing went in my mouth. No hands, no nothing. Um, but we had to go there anyway. And for some reason, they wanted to draw blood. Well, I hadn't eaten in like 48 hours. 
The consulate gave me money. She gave me food. She called the airport to let them know that I would be coming with a very heavy bag. I forgot to mention that on my way, on the way back from there, a scene on in Alani's apartment, the chief of police took me back to where I lived and gave me a few minutes to pack a bag. And I got to see Fatosh there for a couple of moments too. And she and the chief of police were talking and she came to me and handed, she wanted to hand me some money. It was like coins. It was, it just did not make a lot of sense. And I just, I just pushed her away. I was like, I, I don't fucking want anything from you. I really have to question her role in it. Did she know that Karem was involved in these sort of things? What is going on here with her? Like, I, I don't really know. And so I get on my plane, I fly back to London. And that was, that was a really crucial time for me because my, like I said, my flatmate was an ER trauma surgeon and uh, he really knew how to take care of me, like to how to just, you know, someone who is used to trauma and directing people around. So it was like, have a shower, do this, we're gonna and he put me on the tube. I mean, he he put me in London. That was kind of jar. London is very jarring anyway. I mean, but he was like, look, you are not going to fail. You are going to get through this. I'm going to support you. You've got friends that live here in London. And we're going to go and we're going to tell them the story. We are going to get on that train. I, I really feel like he, he, he helped me. He really helped save me um, that weekend. So you spent some time there with him before you flew back to, to the yeah. States. Yeah. You know, after my arrival into the States, I was God, I was a, I mean, I was a, I was a mess. I was really a mess. Do you know what hypervigilance is? Yes. Where you are scanning the room, you're watching faces, you can't settle down. There's a lot of tension in the body, racing heart. I was very hypervigilant. I told a man in Kohl's, my mom and I had gone to Kohl's a, a few days later because I didn't have anything. I was in the intimates department buying bras and underwear. And you know, you have those, it was at the time, like a big round table where you just kind of pick your panties out. And as I looked up, there was an older gentleman across from me, probably in his 60s. And I straight up told him if he didn't get away from that table, I was going to fucking kill him. Like straight out at Kohl's. So that is what I was like. I was very aggressive. I was in a very active fight response. And I, I was not scared at that point. And any, you know, there's certain ways, I don't know if men experience this, but as a woman, there are certain ways when a man looks at you, you might think, oh, he thinks I'm pretty. That's nice. Great. Not a threat. And then there's another way that a man looks at you and you're like, oh, shit. Well, anytime I got that feeling, I was not afraid to be very confrontational. I told several people that I would kill them if they looked at me like that again. It was hard. And I was drinking secretly um, almost all day. I was just kind of drinking in private. I wasn't sleeping. I had terrible insomnia. My bedroom in my parents' house is the room over the garage. And if a car backfired, if I heard anything, it was like, you know, I'm down. I'm, I'm looking through the blinds. So I'm not sleeping. I'm drinking heavily. 
I really didn't tell too many people that I had been back yet, any of my friends yet. The the interesting thing, I think for people who experience something like this is that there can be a lot of shame around an experience like this, thinking that I had done something wrong, I had behaved in a way that brought this on me, even though like we said in the beginning, I I was dressed appropriate to the culture. Yeah, I was dressed. I was, you know, I was not on Instagram. I was not on Facebook. I'm 32 years old. I'm out there dancing around and making myself very public, very visible. I had just been a traveler. I thought I thought that I had my dream job. I didn't know. I mean, there's so much about what I know in my life and my and in my nervous system and in my body now that I, I didn't know then, but I already had complex trauma. I already had complex PTSD. And so now I've got PTSD. I've got some shock trauma on top of what I already had. Um, I was already o- oscillating in 4F trauma responses. And I had this thought of, I need to get a gun. Like, that would have been a terrible idea. Um, thankfully, my friend's husband, who taught jujitsu for the SEAL team and for our Air Force and our, for our active uh, duty, he was like, no, you need Muay Thai. I'm going to take you, you're going to learn how to defend yourself in a real way. And you're going to burn some of that energy out. And so that's what I ended up doing for a little while. I never got a gun. Do you now feel comfortable being in public, able to defend yourself? Very. Yes, I feel I have a much different experience in the world. I used to be very scared, very scared to walk in my neighborhood, uh, very scared, like, to not have an alarm system. I that hypervigilance really stayed with me up until probably 2019. I was a mess. I was a total mess. And and it was really easy for me to fall back into very old patterns like with um with alcohol, with cannabis, with you know, bad partnerships and relationships, like everything just kind of I was I was hiding a lot. I was really scared. I was really scared to be in the world. Did you ever find out what happened with the investigation? Yes. About nine months after I returned home, I testified. I'd gotten a call about a week later, and I testified at the U.S. State Department in Norfolk, Virginia, against Sinan and Alani. They had found Sinan. On the way to the airport, the police, when you rent an apartment in Turkey, you, they, you give them a photocopy of your driver's license or passport. And so they had that. When the chief of police was driving me to the airport, they had a picture of him. And I was like, yeah, that is, that is him. But now he's going to have a big old scar, all a hole in his nose and a scar across his face. But I have no idea. I have no idea what happened. And the attorney that day told me, like, we don't have the best relationship with Turkey. I'm going to submit your testimony, but we really don't know what's going to happen. So you've just had to kind of let that go and hope he got justice. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe your action saved future targets that he was going to go after. And maybe Alani also. It would be hard not to reflect on this story and go beyond Fatosh to think that Sally, my boss, wasn't involved in this either. Like, who knows? Maybe I was trafficked from the very beginning and I had no idea. Maybe that job was never going to happen. And that is the reflection now that I feel like when I started out in the beginning saying like, you know, I'm a fully embodied person now. 
I have a healed nervous system. I do a lot of work to be embodied and to be present and to put myself visibly out into the world and use my voice. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's what you do now. You have a podcast. It's called Trauma Rewired. What do you talk about on your show? Trauma Rewired is a podcast that teaches you about your nervous system, how trauma lives in the body, and what you can do to heal. And so I work in nervous system health and regulation. I help people clear emotional stories from their bodies. I work with um, deficits that might happen in the nervous system. And I really have a specialty for complex trauma. And the podcast has a heavy focus on complex trauma. Well, it's certainly something that you can identify with when you hear somebody tell a story that's something they've gone through. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about this? Yes, um, there's a couple different ways that people can reach out to me. And I love when people reach out to connect with me. Of course, you can find me on the podcast. Trauma Rewired is available where any podcast plays and is available. But also... If you're interested in nervous system health and want to learn some regulation tools, and if you are someone who experiences a a shock trauma, PTSD, or complex trauma, if you go to rewiretrial.com, it will give you two free weeks on the Brain-Based Wellness website where you can learn all about your nervous system and you can really change your life by changing your nervous system. I've heard that. It's amazing. Throughout these years, I had done, I've done all the modalities. I mean, even when I was in Virginia Beach and things, I was quite dysregulated. I was still, I saw a healer. I've, I've saw, you know, I've had, I've had healers. I've done, I've done all the things and nothing has changed my life the way that having healthy nervous system does. All right. Well, we'll have links to those things in the show notes. And so people can go find that. You know what? I just can't help but think, you know, you talked about when you were in the middle of that situation and you thought about things that you had seen on Oprah when she had John Walsh on and these CSI shows. I'm just thinking that at some point, some woman may be in a situation like that and she's going to think back and remember the story that you just told and maybe be able to defend herself in that situation. I hope so. I, you don't ever know what you would do in a situation like that. Like it might not be safe for a woman or a, a person to defend themselves in the way that I did. That was a, that was a pretty dangerous move. And really, if it wasn't for that divine intervention, I don't know that I would be here. I hope this story does help someone, even in a sense of sisterhood. And knowing that if you have been through something like this, you don't have to live with that dysregulation, with that hypervigilance, with that, you know, all of that energy, all that stress in the body is is really dangerous. And you don't have to live like that. I mean, there is another way to be in your body and to be safe. If you want to see pictures of Jennifer and links to her website, or if you want the full transcript of this episode, You can get all of that at whatwasthatlike.com slash 141. If you like this episode, there's another one you might want to listen to. In episode 107, Jill came on the podcast and talked about being held by a trafficker for three years. In this clip, Jill has traveled for 24 hours by bus, and she's just met Jack in person for the first time. She thinks he's her boyfriend, 
because she doesn't yet know what his plans are for her. You know somebody because you've been video chatting and texting, but you've never seen them in person. So there's just kind of this awkward, you know, hour or so where you're like staring at their face, like trying to put the voice and the face together. (laughs) And so there wasn't a whole lot of talking. I just kind of followed him and looked at him and took in the whole situation. And I'm I'm like, you know, soaking in New York and I see the, the New York Times building for the first time, which is huge and something you can't imagine until you see it. But he, he made it pretty quickly. We got, you know, from the subway, I think then we took a bus and then we took a cab after we got off the bus <laughs> and we ended up at his house. The side door opens up to a staircase. One goes up and one goes down. It's kind of like a split level dealio. And he takes me down into the basement. There's another locked door at the bottom of the stairs. He unlocks that door and we go in. And I'm kind of like trying to like not look like I'm suspicious, but I'm like super suspicious. So I'm trying to like look around and soak it in and see like, how do I get back out of here? I don't know. I just, this is a weird place. It's unknown. You know, there was a little bit of normal nervousness there. That's episode 107, titled, Jill Was Kept in a Basement. And I got this voicemail from Lynn. Well, good afternoon, Scott Johnson. My name is Lynn, calling from Ontario, Canada. been listening to your program for, I guess, a few years now. Absolutely love it. And your last one, where is it, Tricia? smuggled her dad into Disneyland, the ashes. I had to laugh. I thought, what a great story. And I must tell you what I did to the ashes, my brother's ashes, what we did to his ashes. My brother passed away, Neil passed away in 2006. And uh, it was a tragic uh, event for him. Uh, That's another story. But he always joked around that when I die... I want somebody to take the ashes, my ashes, and put it on a paint job on a motorcycle. We're motorcycle enthusiasts. We, we had, I have Harleys, he had Harleys. So I talked to my paint artist, and that's exactly what we did. We put him in the clear coat, and my brother is in my motorcycle. And it's really, really cool. And I remember the first time that I took him out for a ride. Like herself, I could just feel his presence. Uh, it's just extraordinary. And when people tell, when I p- tell people the story, they go, "How?" Well, my paint artist Barry put him in the clear coat. So I always say, "Yeah, my brother is now in the clear." And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. Now I have a question for you: Are you on the "What Was That Like" email list? If you're not, you should be. Because this is not a typical boring email list with blah, blah, blah messages and a bunch of ads. These are emails you might actually look forward to reading. I send out an email on the morning a new episode goes live. Just gives you a quick glimpse of what that story is and a little bit about what the listener story is about. But no spoilers, of course. Never any spoilers. I'll also update you on any news about the podcast. But I also include a couple of other things. I include a recent picture from my phone. Just a little peek into something I've been up to where I took a picture and the story behind that picture. And I also come across really interesting things sometimes that I like to share. And who better to share it with than you, my favorite listener? 
Like recently, I came across an article written by a retired firefighter. And he said that some homeowners are unknowingly doing things that actually increase the chances of a home fire. So I put that in there with a link because it's both important and interesting. I come across these things all the time, and that's where they go, in my email to you. So if you're not already on the email list, you can do that really easily. Just go to whatwasthatlike.com email and let me know to add you to the list. No spam, of course, and you can unsubscribe at any time. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And now we have this week's listener story. And I'm always looking for more listener stories because I play one at the end of every show. That means we want to hear your story. Just something interesting that happened to you that you can tell in about 5 to 10 minutes. Record it on your phone and email it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. We want to hear it. This listener story needs a content warning because it includes discussion of suicide. Stay safe. And I can't say for sure yet, but there might be a bonus episode next week. See you soon. Hi, Scott. This is Jenna. And I wanted to share with you my experience one summer as a kid in summer camp. Summer camp used to be one of my favorite places in the world. It was a weekly overnight camp nestled up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, beautiful views, ride on the lake, easy to make quick friends with the girls I was placed with. Most of the campers stayed in cabins, but us horseback girls got to stay in rooms off of the gym uh, with a few bunk beds and plywood walls and it was just the best place. I, I loved everything about it. And I loved horses and didn't get much of an opportunity to ride them during the, the year where I lived and really have access to them. So this particular day uh, on a Wednesday when most of the other campers and the other programs were away from camp, um, we took the opportunity to having the camp mostly to ourselves to take a trail ride. The intention that day was to go have a picnic up in a beautiful field, open field. And so we, in the morning, we were getting the horses ready, getting the tackle, getting the picnic and getting everything together. Uh, It was a very pretty, clear summer day. And as we were getting ready to mount up and get down the hill, I heard something that sounded like thunder. And at the time, I was more concerned about being rained out and not being able to go on our trail ride, but I didn't really think much more about that until later. Um, but as we got down the hill and got to the trail, it was located on the other side of the camp from the stables and behind the archery and riflery ranges. The trail was pretty narrow, so we went in line one by one, single file, because I have had a little bit more experience than some of the other girls. I was up in the front of the line, and the trail was just beautiful. Rays of sun coming down through the forest, quiet other than the sounds of summertime bugs, and you know, just enjoying 
having the opportunity to be up in the mountains and, and riding my horse. And as we came around a bend, I saw something that was laying, blocking the path, laying perpendicular. And from afar, it looked like it was a branch that had fallen. But as we got closer, I made out clothes, uh, khaki, camp khakis, the camp uniform. And it, it was a man. And I saw a rifle laying next to him and a pretty devastating gunshot wound to the head. I don't know how long I sat there before I said anything, just stopped the group and called the counselors up and they called for help and we turned around and headed back down to camp, confused and shocked and not really processing what we'd seen. I do remember that we had plenty of support from the young adults that were the counselors at the time and administration, camp administration came and talked to us, the camp director actually. I had known from his baby was delivered at the hospital where my mom was in an ICU nurse. So I, I knew the camp director. We were given the opportunity to call our parents and explain what had happened. And there was a, a full camp meeting that was held later, but terms of what happened were described very vaguely, which I now understand because um, this is a group of, of young, very young kids. And then over the years, I, will, I finished up that session. I didn't want to leave camp. I finished up the session and returned several summers later up into the point where I was one of the oldest campers and would not be able to go back just as a regular camper. I think I was 15. And I was told a story, a ghost story of what happened to that man. His name was Sterling Fight. And I just, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, but I guess I, I can, I can understand why such a story would be passed around over time. But it comes up, I'm an adult now, close to 40, and every once in a while I'll get hung up on it and I'll think about it. And I am very interested in true crime and always have been. And I think it's because I'm, I'm searching for the, the psychology. What, what was it behind it? What, what happened to him to make him decide to do that that day and, and why others do what they do? But I appreciate you letting me share, and I love the podcast, and I'm, I'm glad I found you. Uh.